As we began our uh, series in the book of Philippians last week, you recall that we really uh, saw it as a journey, a journey uh, through uh, th- with joy uh, as we go through and try to uh, help uh, affirm the gospel of Jesus Christ and to proclaim that gospel. And as you are aware, all great literature probably somehow involves some sort of journey, some leaving of the home and going to another destination. And on that journey, uh, we-, we seldom go by ourselves. You see, that even in Bunyan's classic uh, Pilgrim's Progress. Christian starts off, uh, he is immediately uh, met by evangelists, uh, he has uh, friends that are faithful and hopeful, he goes to House Beautiful, uh, he is uh, with company at Interpreter's House and various other places along his passage. And so is the case uh, with those of us who are on the journey to the celestial city. God has given us a church. We do not journey alone. Kent Hughes says this, human friendship is a wonderful thing, but fellowship goes goes beyond friendship. Fellowship occurs among friends committed to a common cause or goal and flourishes through our common pursuit. And that's really what we have here in the church of Jesus Christ is a fellowship because we have a common goal. We have a common father, We have common desires, common interests, common moral standards, and common purpose. And because of that, there is a tighter opportunity or opportunity for us to be tighter, more closely knit together in fellowship than those people in the world. As she says, our fellowship is rooted in God and is a quest that only can be described as eternal. We have the same goal. We're going in the same direction. What we need to be able to do is understand the fact that we need each other on the way. And we need each other more probably than the way we are practicing now in our individualistic uh, focus of our society. So we're going to unpack the wonderful truths of Philippians chapter 1 verses 3 uh, through 11 with this idea that that we have joy on the journey and that part of the joy on that journey is through Christian fellowship. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we do come before you just recognizing our need for fellowship, but sometimes it's one of those needs we think other Christians need. (laughs) And and we can tend to be selfish. We can tend to be individualistic. We can tend to sort of protect ourselves. Many times we've been hurt by other Christians. There's probably not a person in this room that has not been betrayed in the church of Jesus Christ, that has not been hurt, that has not been slandered against, that's not been stolen against. And yet, Lord, you still command us to go on the journey together and with fellowship. Would you show us through the example of Paul this morning in this wonderful church of Philippi what that would look like as we joy in the journey? In Christ's name, amen. Please do turn to Philippians chapter 1. We are going to be looking at verses 3 through 11. I think you'll find your home group help insert of assistance to you as you seek to kind of understand how we're going to progress through this passage, uh, perhaps break it down here, and also have an understanding uh, or what may maybe to take notes if something in particular kind of strikes you. But as we look at this text, and it's a longer text, so I'm just going to read the verses as we come to them, but we're going to see Paul's appreciation, verses 3 through 6, Paul's affection, verses 7 through 8, and Paul's appeal in verses 9 through 11, and then we're going to break down Paul's appeal, his prayer with four different components there. But first of all, we begin here with Paul's appreciation, verses 3 through 6. Remember, he is writing to the Philippians, the, the church in Philippi. And God says, and Paul writes, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy. 
because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. So again, Paul is such an example of just gratitude, uh, uh, appreciation for what God has done and what others have done for him just sort of exudes throughout him. Uh, and, and this is one of the things that we understand, that when we really grasp God's grace, uh, gratitude is the natural result of that. Uh, Paul may be the most grateful person that ever lived on the planet. You see it all the time. The, and he's, he's probably the most tried person that was ever lived on the planet. And that might have something to do with it. He learned to depend on God's grace, but sometimes only upon God's grace. In shipwreck, in nakedness, and peril, and sword, and all the things that he went through, he had a fond appreciation that over, overflowed uh, as he uh, as he uh, had love relationship with other people and fellowship, pa Paul has probably not actually been to Philippi and probably be about 10 years. He's been in Roman custody for four years. Remember, he is writing this chained to a Roman guard under house arrest. Uh, and though he is in chains, he, he, he feels the, 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 the ability, the need, and the desire and the unction to be able just to show his appreciation. You can almost just see Paul sitting there just languishing after month after month, year after year, and just thinking, I'm just so grateful for God for saving me, for saving me. And it probably helped that he really was the chief of all sinners. He was opposed to God, and he was wrong, and God showed up and uh, confronted him on the Damascus Road and, and, and saved him, forgave him all the sins, including perhaps even murder or affirmation of murder of Christians. He was a terrorist. And, uh, and, and he, as he reflects upon all these things that have happened to him, he can be grateful because he knows he's in God's hands. It is God's absolute 100% will that he is in prison right now. And the other thing is his heart is so focused on his friends, on the Philippians in this case, that he forgets his own difficulties. Folks, that is one of your biggest problems. One reason why you struggle with joy is because you're so focused upon yourself. And Paul helps us to kind of rips that principle away and shows the joy that someone can have who just gives themselves uh, to others. I mean, if you think about Paul, if anyone had a right to vent and complain about how ministry was going, it was the Apostle Paul. It was the Apostle Paul. And who better to do it than the Philippians who really loved him and accepted him for who, who he is? Had this been our letters, it would probably be something like, well, you're not going to believe what happened to me today. You know, this Roman guard hasn't bathed in weeks, you know, whatever it might be. We would just spill out, wouldn't we? But he hardly even mentions his imprisonment and the difficulties. He's just overflowing with joy because he's not focusing on the circumstances. He says here, always in every prayer of, of mine for you all. I mean, he is, Paul is the supreme theologian, but he is also decidedly people-oriented. You know, that's a hard thing to pull off. Uh, it's almost like the more, the more uh, theologically sound we are, the more bookish we become, and the more introverted we become, and the more we kind of remove ourselves from people. But Paul had that perfect balance. There was no more, one more bookish than Paul, and yet he adored people. He was energized by people. He served people. He recognized the reason why he needs to know his doctrine is for people. Because the church is made up of people. He is extremely people-oriented. You know, when, uh, when he's closing in Romans 16, um, 
He's saying goodbye and giving greetings to everybody. And it's one of those things we kind of, it's sort of like flyover territory. We don't spend a lot of time because there's not a lot of theological heft to that. But he mentions some 33 people that are giving greetings at the, at the end of the book of Romans. And he probably left out scores and scores and scores of others. He's just people-oriented. That's really a call for us as well. It's safer to be alone. It's safer not to go to home group. It's safer not to go to a fellowship meal. It's safer not to come to church. It's safer just to stay on at home and go online. But that's, God's not called you for that kind of safety. God is your safety. He will take care of you. And what you'll find is if you move forward and you immerse yourself in other people's lives, it's going to be difficult. People are a mess. We're all a bunch of sinners. And yet it is so very rewarding. It's so rewarding. So he goes on, uh, he, he's uh, talking about this, this principle here. He is interceding for God on behalf of others. This is one of the tricks that those of us who struggle with joy probably ought to take on. And by the way, I understand there is, a, there is an element here of personality and of upbringing. Some of us are more positive, more, uh, more, more prone to joy, to see the, the glass is half full. Uh, the rest of us are not. <laughs> we see the glass is half empty. We struggle. We, we feel kind of these constant burdens. On the, I understand that. That could be temperament by nature. That could be the way you're raised up and everything. But nevertheless, all of us can experience this kind of joy. And one of the ways Paul does it is he's always thinking about other people because he's always praying for other people. He's always praying for other people. Get that church membership. You make yourself a list of people. Get a prayer partner where you are, you've devoted yourself. I have, I have someone every single day in this church that I, I pray for the officers of this church at a minimum. And then this person does the same thing, and we exchange little prayer symbols in, uh, in a text. Uh, and sometimes I forget. She's better at it than I am. Uh, but that, that's just a good reminder. Oh, yeah, I haven't prayed for the officers of the church yet. Let me pray for the officers of the church. You need that. We're so often distracted. Or often our prayer, how does our prayer often go? It starts off, first of all, you're confronted with your sin, so you go on the confession. And after five minutes of confession, you're so depressed, you don't even think about anybody else, right? So there's a time for confession, but you've got to get on with praying for others. You, you, you should have an interest in the other people that God has put in your life here. There's a connection between joy and prayer. The self-focus creates a lack of joy and an absence of prayer for others. And then when he says here, making my prayer with joy, again, he is now introducing this theme that's going to be uh, like a golden thread throughout the book, this idea of joy. It's mentioned every 16 times on average. Every seven verses, he mentions joy. He mentions joy. Now, again, you know, well, this is one of these principles. I remember reading a quote one time. I think it's from John MacArthur. And he said, if, you know, basically, the, the summary was this. If a Christian's not in joy, he's in sin. Like, John, thanks. You know, yeah, thanks a lot. You know, now I'm depressed, <laughs> you know. But, but, but some of us really feel that, right? It's an effort sometimes to be joyful. And it seems like the more responsibility you have, the more difficult that is. You know, so, so this, this, as we go through Philippians, I want you especially to be thinking, okay, there are joy, rejoicing is an expectation God has for you. What is he going to do to help you meet that in? Again, it's easier for some but it's much more difficult for, for others. So what are some of the ways? Well, this idea that he is praying. He is praying with joy. There is a principle here. Now, again, you've got to put yourself in, in, uh, in Paul's sandals here. He is not writing from a resort. He is not writing from a coffee shop. 
He is not even writing from a roach-infested hotel. He is writing chained, under house arrest, chained to a Roman prisoner in, in its fourth year. And yet, he can say we need to be joyful. One commentator says this, Joy for Paul and the other biblical writers was not an emotion or a mood or a feeling, but an attitude. And thus it can be commanded, whereas an emotion cannot, does, uh, he does not urge a feeling, but an attitude. And that's kind of the key, too. We don't feel joyful because we don't feel joyful. And we end up, we've become so feeling focused. Folks, that's one of the things that's destroying truth in our culture. Everybody just wants to say they are based on their feeling. They now, they, they want to interpret life through their own emotions their own awareness, their own identity, instead of believing in absolute truths. Here's an absolute truth, Christian. You can have joy, and God expects that of you. So what do we need to do in order to rise up for this? Joy is a, an, 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 an unwavering, consistent lifestyle of someone who is filled with the Spirit. Paul was as close to God as any human beings ever had, and that's why he had more joy than any other human being ever had. And see, the neat thing about that is no one can take God away from you. You could lose everything. You could be in squalor. You could lose all relationships. You could be a Job. And yet, filled with joy because no one, no one, no one can take God away from you. Paul understood that. Paul understood that. Because of your partnership in the gospel. This is where our point of fellowship comes. That idea for partnership is koinonia. Uh, it's sometimes it is termed fellowship. And you see, again, this theme throughout Philippians. In Philippians 4.15, it brings in this idea of partnership in regards to financial uh, uh, assistance. You Philippians yourself know that at the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you. So it does imply here this idea of partnership as a financial assistance, but basically is more than anything, it's just a shared life. Uh, the Philippians were very much interested in Paul's life, and, uh, and he was very much interested in theirs. Again, we used this text earlier when I was talking about you shall not steal in our catechism question. But we go back to, to Acts chapter 2. You know, this, the, the description of the church in Acts, you know, really can happen today. We don't believe it because we haven't seen it very often. But go again back to Acts chapter uh, Chapter 4, verses 42 and 44. And they were devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to breaking in bread and prayer. And all those who believed were, were together and had all things in common. They understood koinonia. They understood that princ the principle of fellowship and then helping to meet each other's needs. But before they could do it horizontally, they did it vertically. They were devoting themselves to apostles' teaching, prayer, the sacraments. William Hendricks lists eight aspects of fellowship, and they include uh, grace, an understanding that we're all under grace, and that helps us to be able to forgive each other and to look over the, the faults that so many of us have. Uh, faith, prayer, thanksgiving. A, a, a grateful person is a, is a joyful person by nature. Love, service, contributing to the needs of others, and separation from the world, and, of course, spiritual warfare. We're on the same side. We're in the same platoon to a certain degree. We have the same ambition, the same goals. 
uh, goals. James Montgomery Boyce says this, it is not enough to tolerate other Christians. You must enjoy their company. You must learn from them. Furthermore, this fellowship must be one that is constantly expanding to include other Christians, even those whom you have never met, but with whom you forever united in the Lord. You know, uh, your church helps you with this if you'll take advantage of it. First of all, we meet on Sunday. We also have Sunday school class. We also have Vesper services during the summertime. Uh, We also have various Bible studies or book studies during the week. And we also have home groups. And home group is a slam dunk for this kind of thing. It is a koinonia uh, principle here that we have here. You start off with chatting and getting to know each other and how everybody's doing. And that's usually around some sort of food item. And then you have a time of lesson where you go through the home group's help or something else. And you go through the trying to get that disciples, the uh, teaching, I mean, the apostles teaching together. And then you have a time of prayer, heartfelt prayer. And I'm telling you, these folks in these home groups become tight. They become tight. And about uh, six weeks, two months, we're going to kick off our home groups for the next year. We're going to ask you to sign up for a home group and for you to commit that. And we're going to ask those of you who are committed to a home group to maybe think about going to another home group so that you, so that you can kind of get to know other people as well. Uh, and that, is not, that idea is not received real well sometimes. Because you think, we're having such a good time. Why would we, why would we change this? Uh, and uh, so that's not forced on you, but it is encouraged because there's other people out there that need you as well here. But he- here's my goal for our church. And churches like ours that really emphasize teaching and doctrine, that have these wonderful reformed, uh, uh, we, we, we're kind of here for the, for the mind stuff in a lot of ways, for the knowledge and the understanding, the traditions and that sort of thing. But, but we won't stay here if we don't have the love. We won't stay here if we don't have the fellowship. You've got to have both. You want that balance. Paul had that balance. I want us to have a church that has that balance and that has community. And I want our community at this church to be better than any other community any out there, whether it's church or whether it's secular. You know, it's so interesting. Uh, you know, one of the things that, that I admire... You're gonna, this could be a career-limiting comment, but I want you to hear out the rest of it. One thing I admire about the, uh, the LBGT movement is they have community. They have strong community. If you read Rosaria Butterfield's book, she was a lesbian uh, uh, professor. She got saved. She repented from her lifestyle, and she writes books about what that's like because most of us don't understand and, and, and struggle with what's going on in that community. But one of the things she said was, was she, she, and she got married. She's now married to a Presbyterian minister. Uh, she said, I just miss that community. Now, think about it. Why is it the LBGT community is so strong? It's not sex. It's not sex. It's because a lot of these people grew up feeling different, feeling out of place, not fitting in, being a misfit, feeling odd. And they found somebody else who feels that same way and somebody else who feels that same way. And that, that feeling of not fitting in brought people who don't fit in. And guess what? They found a community where they fit in. Folks. Christians are misfits. We are odd people. Some of you more than others. Uh, we, we don't fit in. The things people laugh at, we don't laugh at. The things people watch, the people, things people vote for, we don't vote for. We vote for the opposite. We are odd people. We actually believe in absolute truths. 
We actually believe that you don't get saved by being a good person, but by God's grace. We actually believe there's a heaven and there's a hell. You know, that's just weird these days. We need community. How is it that the LBGT community has better community than our church? Because they're put in the effort. And there's a, there's a, a, a level playing field. They're not sitting there judging everybody all the time and comparing themselves to others all the time. I don't mean, listen, they've got all kinds of issues. I understand that. This is not the day to talk about their issues. It's the, but, but I am jealous in a sense of their community. And that holds them together in a lot of ways, okay? So if you want an example in some, some ways of, uh, from a, a group that we don't want to be like, we ought to take a look at the, the one reason why they're so strong and why they become such a force, because they've got this koinonia in a sense, but they don't. You know why? Because their goal is not to glorify God. Their go goal is not heaven. They're not on that journey together. It's just to be whoever they want to be no matter what without rules or without regulations. That's where, the, of course, the comparison stops. The reason why we can have fellowship is, is because of what John says in 1 John 1, 3. Our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. There is a trinity of fellowship there because we have God, God and Jesus. Uh, and, well, I guess it's a, it's a quadrinity. It's in the Holy Spirit. We have that in common. We can therefore have each other in common. We have the same daddy. We have the same daddy, so we're all part of a family. And he goes back, he says here, this has been the experience from the first time and now he goes back to Acts chapter 16. You remember how the, the, the Philippian church started? It started with a female businesswoman. The first church in Europe started with a female businesswoman. Then it was probably with a demon-possessed slave girl. Then it was with a Philippian jailer. That's how the church, and he's going all the way back. He's saying this is the way that this church established itself as a koinonia church, a church that was generous and that was loving and that was going to walk with each other on the, on the, uh, as we go towards heaven. The other thing about Philippi, which I think Paul loved, they didn't have any just dumpster fire issues in their church. They weren't a train wreck, kind of like the, the Corinthian church was. Uh, they had some issues, we'll see as we go through this letter, some of, of, uh, of factioning maybe and not getting along with each other. Uh, and they had some, uh, some uh, false teaching coming in. But generally, they, they, they weren't a problem church for the Apostle Paul. So he just relished that. He was grateful for that. He says, I am sure of this or I am confident of this, uh, that, that who, whatever God began, he's going to perform uh, until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, this is amazing too. Think about it. Here is Paul, the former Pharisee. Pharisees thought it was, it, and this is the danger of any sort of legalism. You tend to look down on people who aren't like you. You see yourself as being morally superior or whatever it might be, uh, superior to other people. Paul, as a Pharisee, would have justified looking down on women. He would have justified hating Gentiles as a religious, a religious principle of his, okay? And God, in his divine grace and humor, how does, how does the church in Europe get started with the Apostle Paul? A Gentile female. You just got to, Paul's got to chuckle at that. I'm just so grateful I no longer hate Gentiles and females, you know, because the whole church started that way. And he is, because of that, he is confident that, that the God who is saved is going to be the one who's going to continue saved, that there's not going to be anybody who is half saved, who almost made it to heaven, but that didn't, that, that, uh, that his confidence is he knows God's going to finish. 
Whatever he began, he is going to finish. And why is he so confident in that? Because God's the one who saves. Go back to Acts 16. And when Lydia got saved, it says, and God opened her hearts to listen to the things that Paul taught, and she was converted. Ephesians tells us that she was converted, in a sense, in the mind of God before the foundations of the earth. And that's why Paul can be confident, not because we have our act together, not because we never sin, not because it's because God finishes what he starts here. God never fails. John 6, 37 says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Augustus Montague Topoletti said this in Dead or Mercy Alone, The terrors of law and of God with me can have nothing to do. My Savior's obedience and blood hide all transgressions from view. Isn't that amazing? Because who often we think about oh, just what sinners we are. We just can never seem to get our act together. And God's not looking at that because it was taken care of on the cross. He who began a good work and you will bring it to completion into the day of Christ Jesus. You have been saved. You are being saved. And one day you will be saved. Paul reminded the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, you are waiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful. Never, never, never will he let go of his grip. Now we see here Paul's affection in verses 7 through 8. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me by grace, both in the imprisonment and in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. So Paul, Paul is just, he's just oozing with affection here towards this church. You see this here when he talks about how you hold, hold you in my heart here and he yearned for you all as brothers. You see it later on when he calls them my beloved. He says in chapter 4, my brothers whom I love and long for you, my joy and my crown. We should not be afraid of, of being affectionate towards each other in appropriate ways. He says here, the reason why this is is because you are partakers of grace with me. They are partakers, there's our word fellowship, you're fellowshippers with grace. We're on the same journey together, but both in my imprisonment and, uh, and, uh, and from now. He says here, basically, this idea of grace for him, you're going to see this as we get in uh, later on into chapter 1, but in, in, in Paul's mind, in his view... And none would know better this, than this than Paul. He sees being able to suffer for Christ as actually an extension of God's grace. Now, that's hard for us because the last thing we want to do, our whole life seems to be uh, uh, devoted to not suffering, not going through difficulties, not going through inconveniences. But for those of you who've been trained appropriately by suffering and disappointments and inconveniences and difficulties, you understand there's a grace here. You understand that you know God deeper than you did before the suffering. We just want to be like instant Pauls, right? Well, the way Paul got to be his way is because of the beatings, the shipwreck, the difficulty, the rejection from family, the rejection from friends, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We don't want to go through the method. We just want the end results. That's so typical of American, right? But, folks, one of the things Paul's going to teach us in Philippians is we, we embrace, we don't seek the suffering. That's weird. But we embrace the suffering because we know there's going to be grace at the end of this. 
I, I've just been so blessed. I, I've got some vacation coming here. So I'm, I, you, know, you know how it is. You take a week of vacation. It takes you two weeks to get ready for it because you have to work double duty. To, so I'm, I'm like stacking sermons ahead. So I've been just immersed in Philippians for three weeks here. And it has already proven just to be very profitable. I was doing yard work yesterday and uh, came across some yellow jackets. Okay. I did not intend to come across yellow jackets. So I am running around. They're chasing me in the driveway. I am flapping my gloves up and down. Nancy looks at He's become charismatic. You know, I am screaming. I'm running the garage, going through the house, and it's still behind me. You know, you know what I mean? And, you know, I mean, I didn't want to suffer that. I didn't want to be stung. I didn't want to have any of those issues. I didn't want to stop my yard work or anything. But you know what? I thought. That's okay. I really enjoyed God's grace. Didn't swell up too much. Didn't have too much of an issue. Got to use some of the great inventory of uh, essential oils that we have in our house. You know, uh, and I just thought, well, praise God, I've been in Philippians all week. Because I don't know that I would have enjoyed that experience that much, you know. Uh, I, did, I broke land speed records, too, by the way. You'd be, you'd be thrilled to see me running through your beard flying behind me. Grace. The reason why I could have a good attitude about that, and, you know, I, I don't often tell of my victories on these kind of things, is because I'd been immersed in Philippians. I've been focusing on this principle. Y'all, that's, that's part of it. We're going to go to that point, too, here. But so basically, he says, for you are partakers with them, both in imprisonment. Literally, that means his chains. Again, he is probably at house arrest. Uh, we know from the book of Acts, he's paying for his own rent in his own rented house. He's under house arrest. But basically, someone from the Praetorian Guard, they change shifts every six hours. They come, and they unlock the shackle there's an 18 inch chain between he and a roman soldier and they 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 then they shackle him back on with a roman soldier now y'all think about that every meal every time he i don't know how you get dressed with chains on everything that you had to do you're 18 inches away from a roman praetorian guard and yet he just over is overwhelmed by joy and part of it is he knows that's god's praetorian guard He's the one that put there. The other thing is the guard is captive. The guard is listening to Paul all day long. The guard goes back and tells everybody in the barracks, and they get converted so that Romans people are saved in Caesar's household itself. He also is, uh, is, is grateful for them for their mon uh, monetary contribution that was brought by Epaphroditus. We'll hear more about that down the road, too. And in the defense and the confirmation of the gospel, here's another reason why this is the book of joy. The word joy is mentioned more than any other uh, of Paul's epistles. Guess, other, guess what other word is mentioned more? Gospel. Gospel. Again, the key to joy is thinking about something bigger than yourself, thinking about other people other than yourself, thinking about God instead of yourself here. This is the thing that ties us together, our common desire for the gospel. There have been times in, in decades of ministry where the pettiness of some Christians is just overwhelming. The petty complaints, the, 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 the consumer mentality of people in the church, people who walk in and think, what can the church do for me? And so, sometimes it just gets absolutely overwhelming. But the thing that keeps us from being one of those little consumer-oriented, marketing-type churches is we've got a bigger purpose. God gave us all a great commission to take this gospel to all the nations. And if we keep that focus on that, we're willing to put up with a crying baby, an uncomfortable chair, 
a long sermon. The list goes on. And he says here that God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. You can almost see his tears coming down as, he is, as he's uh, probably dictating this to, to Timothy. Uh, and and uh, one commentator says this, Jesus frees us from the tyranny of self-centeredness by his love. An expansive love, uh, I'm sorry, an ex- exp- expansive love that stretches our hearts to embrace others. You're almost now trained to focus on yourself, even to the point in our culture where you get to define yourself. It's so absurd, it's got to collapse. And people are starting to react against that kind of thing. But there's something about that still in all of us, even if we don't embrace a a postmodern ethic. Oswald Chambers says this, the continual, I love the way he puts it, the continual grubbing on the inside to see whether or not what we ought to be, we are, whether or not we are ought, what we ought to be generates a self-centered, morbid type of Christianity, not the robust, simple life of the child of God. Launch out in reckless belief that the redemption is complete and then bother no more about yourself. There is this introspection that can be dangerous. And again, some of this is a personality thing too. But one reason why you're not enjoying koinonia, why you're not participating in fellowship opportunities, why you don't have the relationships that you want to have, is you think you have nothing to offer. You think, oh, who am I? What do I have to offer? I can't help anybody. And you sort of, you sort of go down this self-pity uh, consumed with self kind of mentality, and, and you end up removing yourself from people. And that's dangerous. That's dangerous. God demonstrated his love to you by giving your son. You need to demonstrate your love to, to others, and to a certain degree yourself, by being, by being involved in other people's lives. They have the, the affection of Christ Jesus. I love this term. If that was a literal translation, he would say, by the bowels of Christ. That idea of affection is the, is the, is, uh, is the Greek is the, actually the bowels where the, the emotions come through here. Jesus used this, uh, this expression when he said it in Matthew 9. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion. He had bowels for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. You know how you feel this emotion, this pang of, uh, of, of remorse or, or love that you have. It comes from within. So Paul could not use stronger language here. Now we see Paul's appeal in verses 9 through 11, and we'll have four aspects of that prayer. It is my prayer that, uh, uh, I'm sorry, and it is my prayer that uh, your love may abound more and more with the knowledge and discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. So be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with all the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So here he is with these four aspects of prayer. First of all, there's an abounding love here. It says, my love may abound. Your love may abound more and more. Again, that biblical love. It's so interesting. Agape love is that self-sacrificing kind of love. The kind of love that the good Samaritan had towards the person who had been waylaid in, in, in the street. Uh, that he had nothing to gain from it. It was all, and it's not a sexual. It's not erotic. It's not because there's some trait that deserves to be love. It's just a self-sacrificing love. It's the love of Christ. And Greek literature, it's almost always absent. But it's it is the principle of love throughout uh, Holy Scripture. This was the transforming effect that the New Testament had on the whole world. John, First uh, John three sixteen. By this you know love. That he laid his life down for us, and we ought to lay ought to lay our life down for one another. This is not and it has nothing to do with sentimentality. It, it it's something that is commanded 
It is an action. Both Testaments affirm this idea that the principle that we should be pursuing more than any is love. Indeed, love is the summary of the great commandments, right? You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. If, all, if the only virtue you practiced in life is love, it would take care of itself. This kind of agape kind of love. And it's an abounding love. Uh, he said uh, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, Paul said this, May the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people. You can't just say, oh, yeah, boy, I tell you, I remember back in 2014, I really showed love. You know, we do that sometimes, right? Well, I don't need to do this because back then I was, I, I, I uh, picked up a hitchhiker. I don't know, that's the first thing that came to mind. Don't pick up a hitchhiker. That's a bad idea. But, uh, you know, oh, I, I, I remember I took somebody a meal when they had a baby. Well, there have been seven babies since then. Have you done anything since then? We, we tend to do that. Well, we are, we are supposed to be abounding in love. With, it's an overflowing uh, of love, a continual progression in love. Or as Elizabeth Prentice says, with a hymn that we sang, More love to thee. Once earthly joy I crave, sought peace and rest. Now thee alone I seek, give what is best. This all my prayer shall be, more love, O Christ, to thee. More love to Christ, to thee. More love to Christ, of thee. I, I learned, I've been saved now for almost well, 42 years. And, and I was discipled early on, and one of the things, that, the principle was, you have a daily devotion with the Lord. It, it, at least one in the morning. It's best to have one at night too. And that was just drilled in me. We called it quiet time. Do people still call it quiet time? I don't we call it quiet time. It's not really necessarily, if it's quiet, you've probably fallen asleep. But anyway, uh, you, you, you read, you pray, you have a, maybe you have a, a daily devotion or something like that. And, and, and I still practice that. Now, y'all, I have two degrees in theology. If I need to practice that, you need to practice that. We all need to practice that. Why? Because it helps us to fall in love with God. And if we're in love with God, we're going to love one another. It, I, 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 I scarcely start off a day without reminding myself of, of a need to stay in the fight, to pursue this uh, abounding love. Uh, we also, with knowledge and discernment, notice this, that this love that we're supposed to have uh, is not a blind love. You know that Beatles song, remember? All you need is love. Do you all even know who the Beatles are? Scarlet Nun knows who the Beatles are. All you need is love. No, 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 no. All you need is love. You know what? That, that's, um, that's not true. Because love has to have an object. And if to, for love to have an object, you have to have an understanding of what that object is, right? So this idea of blind love is not biblical. There's, he's, he's saying here, you need to have this love with knowledge and discernment. You need to know your doctrine. You need to know Scripture. You need to be able to apply those, 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 uh, the doctrine and the Scripture to, to life here. You know, one of the, um, this is actually, uh, one of these days, Jack will appear before our presbytery. He's going to have to take a, uh, he'll have to take a written exam, and then he's going to have that exam before the, um, the candidates credentials committee, and then he's going to stand on the floor of presbytery, and they're going to ask him questions about theology, about English Bible, and that kind of thing. But one of the categories of questions is also is Christian ministry, and that's that's where this idea of of knowledge and discernment is, is tested, because they're going to ask him questions that he's going to face as a pastor. For instance, you, 
You have a situation where someone has just come up to you and told you that their child who was raised in the church is now homosexual and is living with a homosexual partner. What do you do? And it's not, there's, there's, there's lots of leeway there and how do you handle that, but they're trying to see his, how he takes the doctrines of Christianity and applies them in a pastoral way. Now, a lot of, that's hard sometimes when you're 26 years old. You know, it's probably easier for someone like me who's actually faced those questions and those issues. You know, you, you get a little bit of gray hairs. And yet, if you've been involved with church, those issues come up. They all come up. These difficult life taking. Someone wants a divorce. Someone has committed suicide. What, you know, what do you do? Because we are to have knowledge and discernment. We are to grow up into the things that, of the faith. He see here, his prayer is also that we are to prove excellence, uh, that you may prove what's excellent. That idea of excellence was generally to, to make a, a, a dis- discriminate between good metals and bad metals, good livestock and bad livestock. We're to, we're not, we're to be people who understand the times. Excellence would include appropriate God-glorifying worship, moral living, loving others, devoted to prayer, and that kind of thing. Uh, He affirms this point in Philippians chapter 4. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is good repute, is there any excellence, is anything worthy of praise dwell on these things? Now, this, this comes by Scripture. It comes by the Holy Spirit. But you can dull the tip of this spear if you're not careful. If you hang out, if, if your principle, if you hang out too much in the world, in a sense, the principles of the world are going to come in and you'll start laughing at things you shouldn't laugh at. You'll start watching things you shouldn't watch. You'll make little teeny compromises. And as scripture says, he is faithful in the little things is faithful all so much. He is unfaithful in the little things is unfaithful all so much. We'll end up maybe even compromising big life decisions because we've just gotten so used to compromise. But we're people, we're not to be snobs, we're not to be, you know, moralistic jerks, but we're to, we're to be attracted by excellence. Things that are good, good metals, not bad metals, good livestock, not bad livestock. We're to make discernment. As Paul asked the, the Corinthians, what fellowship does light have with darkness? <clears throat> Uh, now he continues on here with anticipating the day of Christ's return. So we're, we're to be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. This idea of since, uh, pure is to be unmixed. And you've probably heard this illustration before, but it's very helpful. Uh, Roman pottery tended to be kind of fragile. So sometimes it would crack in the kiln process, the, 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 the burning process. And what they might do is to try to pawn off the cracked pottery. They would fill it with wax and then paint over it. And so uh, a discriminating buyer would go into a pottery shop and they would take the, the pot outside and they would hold it up to the light. And the light would often reveal whether it had uh, cracks in it or not. And what happened eventually was, was uh, uh, people who were selling this pottery, they would eventually, uh, they would stamp it with uh, sin Sarah without wax. So you are the kind of person that when the light is shown on you, you don't have cracks. You haven't filled in the cracks of your character with the wax. You're actually practicing the things that the Holy Spirit has, has taught you. And you are to be blameless. We are to walk, as John says, in the light as he, we, as he is in the light and have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. See, this is one of the things that's the one reason why some of you are hesitant to fellowship. is because you've had your fellowship torpedoed by selfish, immoral Christians before. 
you've shared a prayer request and it's gone out on, uh, in public or you've been uh, used or abused before. And that, this is one reason why there's a moral standard that we all had to have. This is where church discipline comes in. You know, if we've got, a, if we've got someone who's causing problems, if they're not a believer, they need to get out. If they are a believer, they need to repent. Hendrickson says this, the whole of life must be preparation for that great day. Because he's talking about here, we ought to be pure and blameless for the day of the Lord. The whole of life ought to be in preparation for that day. For it is then that the true character of every man's will be revealed and everyone will be judged according to his work. You know, I don't know what that's going to look like. You know, you get this, this scene in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that really motivates me. Uh, and in and, and a symbolic language, but Paul says this, and if any man builds on the foundation of Christ with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it is be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. If any man's work is, uh, uh, which he has done uh, is built remains, he will receive a reward. If any man's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved so as through fire. There's evidently this principle here that when we die, our life is going to be evaluated like it's passing through a fire, a testing of fire. And whatever we did, like what Paul does, when we koinonia, we fellowship with, we partnership, we serve, we fulfill the gospel, thing, that's going to stay. That's like precious jewels going through a fire. But all the selfishness, the backbiting, the compromise, all those things... All, uh, walking into church saying, how can this church serve me? That's going to burn up. So that someone could actually lose all their rewards but still be saved because they're actually a Christian. But there's others that are going to have bountiful rewards in heaven. Now, I don't know how that's going to look because we're all going to be happy in heaven, but some have said some will have a greater capacity for happiness. But the other thing is this appears to be a public event. It appears to be that this is going to be something that all of heaven is going to be able to see. That motivates me. And the thing about it is maybe we're there to give testimony to support one another in that time. That would make sense. We're going to have fellowship in heaven. We start with the fellowship. With this gospel focus, this other's focus, we can look forward to this day instead of uh, dreading that day. And we can be filled with this fruit of, of righteousness. I love what uh, Susanna Wesley, when John Wesley went off to Oxford, she wrote him this. She said, whatever weakens your reason, impairs the tenderness of your conscience, obscures your sense of God, or takes off the delight of spiritual things, whatever increases the authority of your body over your mind, that thing is sin. And kind of left it at that. We see finally here, he says here, ascribing glory to God. Uh, and, and his whole principle here is we're going to do all of this, all the things that we've talked about in these last several verses to the, is to the glory and to the praise of God. Puritan Thomas Brooks says this, the aim of the obedient soul is pr in prayer and praises is talking and walking in giving and receiving in loving and doing is divine glory. That's the desire of our, of our fellowship is to glorify God. We do that. We can't do that in isolation. We can't do that in a monastery. We can do that in the church of Jesus Christ. But this is our chief end, right? To glorify God. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. If, if we can eat and drink, what's more basic than human existence than that? And that can glorify God? How much more can serving one another in a loving church?
So you need fellowship. You need to have uh, friends on your journey as you're going through this life and uh, and the progress of the gospel. And we can enjoy this kind of sweet koinonia here. I'm going to close with the last uh, stanza of a debtor of mercy alone. My name from the palm of his hands, eternity will not erase. Impressed on his heart, it remains in marks of indelible grace. Yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given, more happy, but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. Father, on our journey, I pray, God, that you would help us to know and understand and just live that security that we're under uh, by being of uh, unity and fellowship here on this earth. Let us demonstrate the kind of love that you had for us as we demonstrate that love for each other. When people visit our church, let them just marvel how they love one another. Let our neighbors talk about us in that way. But most of all, Lord, let you be glorified as we are edified through koinonia, through fellowship, through partnership on this journey of joy. In Christ's name, amen.